Let me invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 22 this evening. Genesis chapter 22. Think about this question with me for a second. How much do you love God? If we needed, if we wanted to quantify your love for God, how would we do that? It's. Uh, I think if I asked each of you individually, you'd probably most of you would say the same thing that you love Him very much. Or maybe you'd say like we just sung. Uh, like we just sing, uh, I surrender all. I'm, I'm willing to give it all for, for God. But do we really? Are we, do we really love God with all that we have? There was a uh, pastor of a small farming community. He went to visit one of his members on a weekday morning. And uh, he, he asked this member of his, who was a farmer, uh, they were just talking about giving and, and how they needed to give everything to God and, and so on pastor said to the farmer, John, if you had a hundred chickens, would you give 50 of those chickens to the church? And the farmer said, Reverend, you know that I give 50 chickens to the church. Of course I would. And he said, what about if you had 24 sheep? If you had 24 sheep, would you give 12 of them to the church? He said, Reverend, you, you know I would give 12 of those sheep to the church. I, I want to, to serve God in that way. And the pastor said, what about if you had two pigs? Would you give, two, would you give one of those pigs to the church? And the farmer said, now, come on now, pastor. You know that I have two pigs. And that makes it much more difficult for me to answer that question. You see, when it comes down to it, we can speak in theory how much we love God, but when it comes down to what we really have, how do we answer? Are we really willing to give up all that we have for God? I mean, what about your finances? Are you giving sacrificially or is it just a theory? What about your time? Are you really giving much of your time to God? Or is it just a small portion of it? What about getting involved in the lives of other people in the church? Are you really doing anything there? Do you really have any concern for anyone else here? I mean, when we get down to it, our love for God is expressed in so many ways. It's not just in, in, in our words. I surrender all. It is when God speaks to us about a specific thing, do we respond? And Abraham in Genesis 22 here is at a crossroads in his life. Was he going to obey God without reservation? Or was he going to trust in his own ingenuity? Should I really offer my son as a sacrifice, the one who's going to provide for me all the descendants that God has promised? If he left it to his own thinking, he would have easily failed. Let me read this passage, uh, chapter 22, beginning with verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. 
Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it will be provided. And then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seeds as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now it came about after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz, his firstborn, and Buz, his brother, and Kemuel, father of Aram, and Kethed, and Hazo, and Pildash, and Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother, his concubine, whose name was Reumah, also bore Teba and Gaham and Tahash and Maacah. The main focus of our attention this evening will be verses 1 through 19, the sacrifice of uh, the intended sacrifice of Abraham's son. I think the point of this passage is that God tests us to show us that we are not God. God tests us to show us that we are not God. God was trying to show Abraham who he was and in showing Abraham who he was, Abraham was able to see himself better. And that's what happens in our tests as well. This is no small test for Abraham. Remember just in the previous chapter, chapter 21, what happened to his his older son, Ishmael? He had to be sent away because he mocked Isaac at the age of three, likely. And, And so Ishmael, this one who he thought was the child of promise, is now being sent away. And so now God leaves Abraham with this one and only son. He's he's a hundred and some years old now, Abraham is. So there's not really it's not really going to happen that he would have another son. And now God says to him, I want you to, to take him to an altar that I will tell you about and offer him up as a sacrifice. And so what we will see tonight is the value of the crucible. Why God tests us. Why God tests us. Now, first of all, we need to answer. Notice, this is a test that God is giving. Verse 1. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. That God tested Abraham. Now, now how can God do this? How can God test us? 
Now, James 1 is clear that God does not tempt us, that He does not tempt any man, but we are drawn away and enticed by our own lusts. But God, in fact, does test us. Let me just point your attention to several other passages. I think there's two primary reasons why God tests us. Number one, He tests us in order to reprove us, to strengthen us, to improve us. Exodus 20.20 Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of Him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. God was there strengthening these people. Job 42.5 Job at the end of his trial says, I have heard you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. God is, is showing Himself to Job in a way that He hadn't shown Himself before that Job hadn't seen God before. So God does, in fact, test in order to reprove or to strengthen believers. James 1.3 uh, James there says that the testing of our faith produces what? Produces patience or endurance. And, and so it, it, it builds in us character, the testing of our faith, the, the improvement that comes when God puts us through the crucible, through the trials in life. 1 Peter 1.7 that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God uses tests. One of His purposes in it is to, to improve us, to strengthen us, or to reprove us. That means when we are going in a certain direction spiritually, He grabs us with trials and puts us back on the right road. And that's a good thing. The second reason God tests people in the Scripture is to examine them. To examine them. Listen to Exodus 16.4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. In other words, God's saying, I want to see for myself, whether or not they're going to succeed, whether they're going to follow me or follow their stomachs and, and, and their feelings. Hey, I want to see if they follow me. Deuteronomy 13, 2 through 6, there the Lord saying that He is testing them in order to find out whether they love Him. The reason that He led them through the wilderness, He wanted them to see that it was only God who was important. Not all the things of this world, not even themselves and their race but it was God. So, which of those two tests is God using here for Abraham? Is He trying to reprove him? Or is He trying to examine him? Okay, He's trying to examine him. I think that's the primary reason. Look at verse 12. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So I think we could say clearly that the, the primary means or primary reason that God tests Abraham is to examine him. See if his faith is, is uh, genuine, is strong, if he's willing to give up his greatest possession. But I think there also is a sense in which God is trying to improve the faith of Abraham. We'll see that as we go through. And uh, notice that Abraham is ready for the test. When God calls to him in verse 1, his response at the end of the verse is, Here I am. The nature of the test is given in verse 2. Take your son, 
your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, how old was Isaac at the time of the test? Look at verse 5 because it gives us an indication of how old he was. Abraham said to his young men, that is his servants, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there. Okay, it could be translated boy. Verse 12, he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. So don't stretch out your hand against the lad. So two times Isaac is called the lad or the boy. We think of some small boy in that case. But lad in the Scriptures can also refer to a teenager or even a young man. Uh, in First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 28, it's used uh, to refer to someone who is a military warrior, someone who is proficient in military battle. Okay, we're not talking about boys there. The same word lad is used for that type of person. Um, so I actually take... Um, Isaac to be older than just a small boy. I think he was a teenager by this time. And there's several reasons why I think that. One is the use of lad in other parts of Scripture. Um, Josephus uh, believed that he was about 25 years old. I'm not sure if that's uh, accurate or not. Josephus was an early uh, historian, and, uh, and so that, that very well could be. But I actually take him to be around a teenager at least. It could be up to the age of 25. Several reasons why I don't think he's a small boy. First, Isaac was old enough to know what was going on. Look at verse 7. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Hey, Isaac's no small toddler. Okay, Probably not even a small, like we would think, elementary student. But he, he actually understands what's going on. We're going to the place of sacrifice, and yet we don't have a sacrifice, Dad. What are we going to do? Okay, so he's old enough to know what's going on. Verse 6 tells us that he's old enough to carry the bulk of the load. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. Okay, how, how, how heavy could that be? You know, uh, so, so Abraham, being much older now, getting probably more and more decrepit in his old age, he's in, in his hundreds again, uh, is not able to carry all those things, and Isaac is. He's old enough to carry the bulk of the load. Um, I think the last verse of chapter 21 actually gives us a, the best indication that this is not a small boy. Now, in order to set this up, we need to understand that in chapter 21, remember, he had been weaned. Uh, that's when they threw the feast for him, and I said that that usually happened in the ancient Near East at the age of around two or three years old. So if he's being he's weaned at that time, and then uh, Ishmael is sent away, it's got to be sometime after that. Verse 34 of chapter 21 says Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistine for many days, or actually could be translated for a long time. All right. So so what we have here, I think, if you pile up all these different proofs, these evidences within the text, we have to uh, we don't have to, but but I think we see that that this is. Uh, uh, probably a teenager or a young man. All right, so this is a significant trial for for Abraham and for Isaac. Isaac is included in this. He knows what's going on. Eventually, he will find out. And uh, so let me give you several reasons why God tests us. Number one, God tests us to remind us of our reliance on Him. 
God tests us to remind us of our reliance on Him through faith in His promises. Verses 3-10. through 10. Notice the faith of Abraham in verse uh, 3. It says, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. What you don't find in this passage is Abraham complaining or arguing with God. You know, you would expect him to at least plead with God, this is my son on the basis of your promise. You can't do this. But what do we find Abraham doing? Verse 3, early in the morning he obeys. Similar to what happened in chapter 21 when he was supposed to send out Ishmael, which was a hard thing for him to do. He got up early in the morning and did it. It took three days, verse 4 tells us, to get to Mount Moriah, which is modern-day Jerusalem. And then uh, we see his faith here in verse 5 most clearly, I think, uh, besides the actual raising of the knife. Verse 5 says, Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Now what it sounds like when we read it in this translation is, We will worship and I will return to you. But the, the original language, Hebrew there, is actually that word return to you includes the idea of we will return to you. It's plural. So what he's saying is here, we will go and worship and we both will return to you. Isn't that an amazing statement of, of Abraham's trust in God? How could Abraham possibly do this? How could he possibly have unflinching faith? Did God let him in on a little secret that, hey, you're not actually going to sacrifice him? Is that what God did? No, he was completely left in the dark. Did he really know in his heart that God wasn't going to follow through? Hebrews chapter 11 gives us the answer. Turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. We can see what Abraham was thinking when he took his son up to the mountain to offer him as a sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was him, it was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Notice. The, the faith that Abraham has, verse 1, by faith, re- results in, Abra- in Abraham's obedience, his believing God's promise, verse 18. It was he whom God said, and through Isaac all of your descendants shall be blessed. And that was the, and, and obviously the unflinching faith comes from his belief that God can raise the dead. He believed in his heart that even though God told him to take him to that altar and to kill him, that God had the power to raise him to the dead and that he very well would do that if Isaac were dead. He would raise him from the dead because he had to follow through on his promises. And it was only through Isaac that those promises would come. All right, now turn back to chapter 22 of Genesis. Abraham's faith is 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 amazing to to consider. 
He was willing to give up his son, knowing that God would raise him from the dead at the very least. So in verses 6 and 7, they head for the place of sacrifice. Notice verse 6, there's no hesitation here. There's no dragging of his feet. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac is confused as to what's going on. So he asked his father, Father, what's going on? Where's the the sacrifice? Notice Abraham's response in verse 8. He said, God will provide for Himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Now, Abraham didn't know about the ram. He didn't know that he was going to have a specific animal that would be provided there. But he knew from personal experience that God provides. He had seen God provide in several ways. And he knows that, that God cares for him. And so he recognizes that if God cares for him, that God provides, then my responsibility is simply to obey God. And that is what he, that's what He does. And that's what makes faith so difficult. Because we believe in God whom we cannot see. We believe in the true and living God even though we can't see Him. We don't know what He's doing. We don't know how the future is going to unfold exactly. And that's what makes faith so difficult. So Abraham is should be commended because he's not delaying here. He's ready to give his greatest possession because God asked for it. The child that he had waited for decades to receive finally was here and had grown to a young man. And now he was going. he's willing to offer him up. Notice Abraham's faith in verse 11 because when he actually lays Isaac on the, off, on the altar, notice what the angel Lord has to do in order to stop him. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He says, here I am. Okay, he, Abraham is ready to go, uh, to, to go and, and, and kill his son. He's, he's got the knife lifted and it's not as if he's just waiting, waiting, waiting. Something going to happen. Remember, he thought that Isaac was going to be raised from the dead. So he's ready to go and, and the... The reason that I know that he, he's not hesitating here is because the angel of the Lord calls him two times. Abraham, Abraham! Now I know that you fear me. That you fear God. And uh, so, although I think uh, in Sunday school we often learn that, that, that his hand was held back, that you know someone was holding his hand back, the text doesn't say that simply was called to by God. And so I think that shows that he was not hesitating. So Abraham was was uh, full of faith. He was ready to offer what God asked him to offer. But, but Isaac also had faith. Verse 9. Look at verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. You say, well, where do you see the faith there? The reason I know that Isaac was full of faith is because he didn't have to be bound. Uh, he didn't have to allow himself to be bound to the altar. Who do you think was stronger at this point? A 16-year-old, maybe up to a 25-year-old, or a 116-year-old, up to a 125-year-old? I mean, you think Isaac could take his dad at this time? Yet you don't find any struggle here. You find Isaac being willing to give himself, recognizing probably that he believed his father. 
that his father said, listen, God's going to provide a lamb. Just trust God. God told me to do this. And so, uh, I know this is hard for you, son. And it seems as if Isaac goes up there, at least the text doesn't say that he was kicking and screaming. I, I don't believe he was. I think he, um, he and his father were probably crying as uh, this would be a very difficult thing for both of them as the father raised his knife to his son. So, how do we express our faith? In God, how, how is it that we express our faith? If, if through Abraham, God, he was asked a specific thing to offer his greatest possession, how do we express our faith? How can we trust God as much as Abraham trusted God? It's not an easy thing, um, but I can assure you that you won't trust God unless you don't unless you know God. You won't trust God unless you know God. Psalm nine ten says, "Those who know your name trust you." For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who hear you or those who fear you. You won't trust God unless you know God. And, and so you have to know and believe that God is good. The only way you can do that is by looking at Him being good in His Word and then seeing Him as good in your own life. You have to know God. But you also have to know that God is sovereign. You have to know He's good and you have to know He's sovereign that He is in control of all things, that no matter what He asks of you, He will accomplish His purposes and He will always do it for His good and, and for your good. So that means that we need to trust in God's goodness, His sovereignty. The only way we can do that is if we know God. And that's why the highest thing in life, the highest thing in the life of a believer is to know God. We, we ought to give ourselves fully to know God more. And, and when we do, we will trust God. We won't withhold our obedience. We won't expect some evil to befall us as if God's playing a dirty trick on us. But we'll trust that, God, You are good. You are in control of all things. And I'm happy to follow You wherever You lead. So God tests us in order to remind us of our reliance on Him through faith in His promises. Secondly, God tests us to remind us of His goodness. Verses 11 and 12. God tests us to remind us of His goodness. Again, the purpose of the test was to examine Abraham's value system. Abraham, where do you stand before me? God received confirmation. Verse 11 says, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. God received confirmation that Abraham's faith was real. Listen to James 2, 21 and 22. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. This wasn't salvation that James is talking about, but he's, showing, he's talking about the evidence of our faith. The way that our faith is expressed is through obedience. And this obedience was seen most clearly in His offering up of His Son, His greatest possession. Now, why would God need to test us in order to examine us? Right? Normally, when we go to the doctor and they examine us, they need to find out more about us, our body, what's going on within our body. Because they don't know. Now, why would God have to do that 
since He knows everything, is God missing something? Um, but, but we often find in the Scriptures that God does test people in order to know them, to, to, to examine them. Some would say that God can learn things, that He's responding to what we do, that He doesn't know what's going on in the future, He doesn't even fully know what's going on currently, and that God cannot know what the future because the future is not known. Uh, this is called open theism. But there is clear proof in the Scriptures that God does know all things. He knows what's happened in the past and every single inch, every single uh, molecule of this universe. He knows what's happening right now. And He knows what will happen in the future because He's planned it all. Listen to Matthew 6, 8. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. God does know the future. This is not an insightful estimation, okay? Based on how they've asked before, 90% chance they're going to ask for this. No, He knows exactly what you're going to ask before you ask. Isaiah 65:24. Before they call, I will answer. And while they are speaking, I will hear. 1 John 3:20. God is greater than our hearts and He knows all things. Okay? There's nothing that God doesn't know. Isaiah 46, 9-11, and there he says, I am God declaring the end from the beginning. That nothing from the, the beginning of time all the way till the end of time is unknown to me because I've declared it. I've said what will happen. And so what we should not think when it says that God is examining uh, Abraham and that, that when he finishes, he says, now I know. Um, we should not think that God is learning something. Rather, you see, God never reacts. God is not bound by anything outside of Himself, including time and human action. God was not seeking new information. He was examining Abraham for the sake of Abraham, to show Abraham where he was in his faith. And so God tests us to remind us of His goodness. His goodness is seen clearly in verse 11 by stopping him from doing this, this uh, thing to his son. Number three, God tests us to remind us of His provision. Verses 13 and 14. God tests us to remind us of His provision. Verse 13 reads, Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. In, this, in these verses, we learn about the principle of substitution. See the end of this verse? And offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. The idea of substitution. And Hebrews, that we saw at the end of verse 19, Hebrews 11:19, that that Isaac was there as a type. Okay, that means he's pointing forward to another person who's going to give himself as a sacrifice. And that, was, that is Jesus Christ. Christ took our place. You see, we deserve to die. Isaac deserved to die. Or we could say even Abraham deserved to die, but Isaac was dying in his place. Isaac deserved to die, but the ram died in his place. And what we see in Jesus Christ is that we deserve to die, not Christ. He did nothing wrong. And yet, Isaiah 53, 4-6 says this, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. 
Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. I tried to highlight in there the, the plural possesses, possessives that point to us that, that it was our sin, our transgressions, our, our fault that Christ had to die. Not Him. He bore it upon Himself so that we would not have to. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Christ died in your place. Do you recognize the wrath of God that you deserve because of your sin? That God stands in judgment over you because of your sin. Not one of your sins can be left unpunished. And yet Christ willingly stood in your place when He died on the cross for you. He took your sin upon you. The idea of substitution And in place of the wrath that you deserved from God, Christ took it. And the righteousness, the righteous life, the perfect life that Jesus lived, God has accounted that to you. He has put it in your account as if you are perfectly righteous even though you are not. And that's the great message of salvation. The Lord provides a substitution. He provides for us. Here, it was a ram to provide for the atonement of sins in verse 14. Number four, God tests us to remind us of His faithfulness. Verses 15 to 19. God tests us to remind us of His faithfulness. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, "By By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed. And he goes on to recount all of the promises that he had given to Abraham prior to this. God had reminded him several times, I will follow through on my promises. I will follow through on my promises. And here he does it again. Because I've seen your obedience, Abraham, I still will, I still will follow through on my promises. And God has not changed. He still will follow through on the promises that He's made to us as well. And He will be faithful to those promises. Now, the end of the chapter finishes with something that doesn't have a whole lot to do with um, the story we just considered, but it is rather about the family of Abraham's brother, Nahor. This is simply a recounting of the family tree here. Abraham's brother, uh, Nahor, has eight sons through his wife, Milcah, verses 20 to 23 and then four sons through his concubine, Ruamah, verse 24. And the key thing I think we need to point out here is this uh, granddaughter that's born in verse 23. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. Okay, Rebekah would, would be the bride for Isaac. We're going to, to see her here in a couple of chapters. Rebekah's the one that comes through, uh, actually part of Abraham's uh, family line. His, uh, I guess it would be his great niece or, uh, or his brother's granddaughter, I guess. Uh, so God here in this passage is speaking primarily about wholehearted obedience. 
wholehearted obedience. And so, because God demands wholehearted obedience of us, then we should expect to be tested by Him. We should expect that God will bring in our lives certain trials to test our faith, to examine us, to strengthen us, to see how much we actually trust and value Him and not just the things that He gives. Now, we could ask the question, how how could God be so demanding? How, How could God be so demanding of us to bring in our lives a difficult trial like this? How could He do this to Abraham? How could He be so demanding? And I think that's the wrong question. When you ask the wrong question, you often get the wrong answer. I think the right question is, how could we be so demanding of God? Doesn't God already own us? Doesn't God, didn't God already own Abraham? And he, he, he could have free will to do whatever He wanted with Abraham's life. I think that's the way Abraham actually saw it. God, you, you can take whatever you want because it's all yours anyway. And so if God does take something from us, it's not a bad thing. Especially when it tightens our grip on Him. And that's often why trials come. You've gone through trials in your own life. Perhaps you're going through a difficult one right now. And what you found before you went through that trial is that the grip in this life was so strong on the things of this world and the gifts that God gives rather than on God. And when the trial comes, it's as if you lighten your grip on those things and say, I don't need those things. Those are not important to me. What's most important is you and your word, and I'm going to grip onto you. And in that sense, isn't that the best thing that God can do for us? Bring trial into our lives to help strengthen us and to examine us, to see where we are, to help show us where we are spiritually. Are you willing to be like Abraham and give up your greatest possession for the sake of advancing God's work? in your life? Are you willing to give up your greatest possession? Say, well, I don't, I don't even know what my greatest possession is. Well, I'll help you figure out what it is. What is it that you wake up in the morning thinking about? What is it that you plan to spend your money on? Hey, what is it that, that takes up the time of your day? That's the thing that you value most. That is your greatest possession. Are you willing to give that up? For the sake of God, are you willing to give that up for the sake of God's work in your life? Now, now we can all say, like we just sang, that we surrender it all. We're willing to give it all, but it's much harder to put it into practice. And so let me try to, to narrow this down to where we actually live. You know, it's like the question, you know, would you be willing to die for Christ? Well, we all say, yeah, well, I think I would. But, but the real question is, uh, are we obeying God from day to day right now? That'll really answer that question for us. So let me try to bring this down to to where we live. When you're prompted by the Holy Spirit through the Word in a specific way, how do you respond? When you see in a passage of Scripture that you have to respond in a certain way and you recognize that that's the Holy Spirit that's leading you to respond, how do you respond? Do you try to explain the passage away? Oh, that's you know that's probably for them. That's not really for me. That doesn't really apply. Uh, 
Do you make excuses? Well, I just don't have enough time to respond to God in that way. I, I mean, God would understand. I've got a lot of other responsibilities. You, you hear from the Word that you are responsible to be more loving to the people in your family. Or you recognize that you need to stop cheating on your taxes. Or that you need to stop degrading that person who sits next to you in the office because they are made in the image of God. You need to, to, to show love. And when you hear those types of things, that, and you, you are pricked in your conscience that you need to change, how do you respond? Do you ignore it? God, I'm willing to give you whatever you want except that. that that's a little too difficult for me. You see, it comes down to what we value more. Do we value praise from God or do we rather have our own personal comforts? You know, in, in, in our society, we are so concerned about putting guardrails around our own personal comforts so that people can't get in and, and break them down and take them away from us. You know, that's not the most important thing in our lives, to be personally comfortable in whatever way that is. The most important thing is... Per- is 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 uh, receiving uh, or, or is pleasing our God. So how do you respond when God asks you to give specific things to Him? For those of you who have children, are you willing to allow your child or your grandchild to be used for God's service full time? Okay. If, if it meant that your child or grandchild had to be taken away to a third world country or a potential hostile environment so that they could proclaim the name of Christ there, would you be okay with that? Or are you more concerned about seeing your children, about seeing your grandchildren? What is most important to you? I'm not saying that missions work is for every child. And there are lots of places that Christians need to be serving in this country in regular secular jobs. That's a good thing. How are we going to reach those people without people that are doing that? But what I'm saying is, are you willing to go that far? Allow them to to go to another country that could potentially be the place that takes their life. See, if, if we're resistant to that, and that reveals something that's in our heart. Reveals what is most important to us. And I can assure you that it's not God. It's more concerned about our own personal, again, our own personal comforts. I want the comfort of being with my child, my grandchild. So I'm not going to allow them to be put in that. We need to be willing to give whatever God asks for us. If we can get to this place, then it will free us up from many of the worries that we have in this world. The hardest thing in life to face is loss. The hardest thing to, 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 to face is loss, particularly of the things that we value most. But if we can get to a place where we're willing to face loss, that, that we're willing to have things taken from us, for the sake of God, then we will be far more assured that God is working. We will far uh, we will see much more clearly how God works in our lives. Listen to Deuteronomy eight three: Man shall not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know, the best way to assure that you're going to be able to face loss in your life, you don't know what lies around the corner of your life. You don't know what kind of losses are ahead of you. But the surest way to to make sure that you can stand up to those challenges with God's help is to treasure God's Word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I'm not going to put my focus on the things of this life, my grip, but I'm going to put it on God and His Word. I'm going to hold on with all that I have, even though it doesn't make sense at times, even though it hurts at times. Psalm 119.92, If your law, the psalmist says, had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. But because of your word, he goes on to say, I am able to stand up in your affliction. He was gripping on to the word. He wasn't concerned about the things of this life primarily. It was about God and his word. I can't live a meaningful existence without your word, God. I can live with all the, without all the other things in life. And so you can take those away. But don't take away God's word. And isn't that what, what godly believers are asking for at the end of their lives? They don't ask for all their diplomas and all their achievement awards and, and things like that. They don't ask for all the pictures of the great things that they've done. You know what they ask to hear about? Could you please read the Word of God to me? It's, it's a treasure to my heart. It's a treasure to be near God at a, that's such a dark time. When I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of, the, of death, I don't fear anything because you are with me. You're my rod and my staff and you comfort me. It may not be easy, but it's always good. It's always God's good hand working in our lives. Keep in mind that, that not all tests have happy endings like this one does. There are many people, if you read through the book or the chapter of Hebrews 11, you're going to see that people were sawn in two. People were tortured, were killed without having received the promise. They didn't re- receive the promise really until the next life. And so that not all of the times of loss will have happy endings, but that's okay. Because that happy ending that I'm talking about is only a temporal happy ending. There, there will be a happy ending finally, fully, ultimately when we reach glory and Jesus says to us, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And if you are unsure of whether you can give up your greatest possession, and perhaps you don't understand fully what Christ or what God did for you. Romans 8:32 that says that he did not spare up his own son. He did not withhold his son from us, but he delivered him up for us all. And if God's willing to do that, give up his greatest possession, then why would he not with him also give us freely all things? The point there is that everything that we face in life is a good thing from the hand of God. Everything, even the loss, it's a good thing. And the reason that we know that is because what He did on the cross. He didn't spare up His greatest possession, so why would He withhold anything else from you? 
we recognize what God has done for us, our response should be willing a willingness to give up whatever He asks of us. What is it specifically that you're withholding from God? What specifically have you been burdened about and you haven't done anything about it? I'm just going to ignore that and put that to the side. It's not really important at this time in my life. I'd encourage you that, that you need to, I need to, respond to the Word of God when He speaks. Not to just be hearers of the Word. Unbelievers do that. We need to be hearers and doers of the Word. And that really is what sets apart those who love God, who trust God, and those who don't. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for Jesus Christ that You gave up Your greatest possession for us. It's amazing to think of Your love for us in sacrificing Your Son. In some ways, it was like what Abraham did, but in other ways, it was much different because Christ actually bore that sacrifice. He actually experienced that sacrifice. He literally died. And He did that for our sake. We're thankful that He came to earth to die for our sins because we could not ultimately pay for our sins. We could not ultimately stand rightly before You apart from Him because we have no good thing in us. We are condemned before You because of our sin. And we deserve Your wrath. We deserve to an eternal hell. But Jesus took our place. He took Your wrath upon Him. He satisfied it. So now... Our, our slate is wiped clean. We thank You for the faith that You have given to us. Even that act was from You. We could not do it on our own. We needed Your help. And so we're thankful that You brought the message of the Gospel to us and allowed us to respond in faith and repentance. We ask that our lives would be continually marked by that those same two things. Believing in You and turning from sin. That it would be a continual, uh, perpetual action of ours. We'd be trusting in You and turning from our sins on a regular basis. And we need Your Word to do that. So help our grip not to be on the things of this world, but on, uh, but on Your Word. And that we would not be satisfied until you, we hear You speak. We love to hear You speak. We love how it in, inflames our heart to do more for You. We pray that You would give us more of it and that You would help us to prioritize in our lives what is of most importance, what is of most value, so that we can come to the place that Abraham came to in his life, that we're willing to give whatever it is that You ask us. Lord, and there are people in here right now that are going through significant trials and who will go through significant trials. And, uh, and it's going to be hard. And we, we don't want to minimize those things, but we do want to see them in their proper perspective. We want to recognize that what You're doing is ultimately for our good to examine us or to strengthen us spiritually. And we want that in our lives, even if that means loss. We don't ask for these deep trials to come, no, but, but we, do, uh, we do ask that You would give us the grace to go through them and not to turn from You we pray that You would continually pursue us and, and use these trials to turn us back toward You and that in the end we will praise You for Your grace in trial and that, it, that we will see Your Word more clearly and see its value for us more clearly in these trials. 
Give us the strength to do this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.